Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as your hosts, Jimmy Atkinson and Andy Hagens, discuss tax-advantaged investment strategies to help you grow your wealth. From commodities to real estate, private equity, agribusiness, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm Andy Hagens. And I'm Jimmy Atkinson. And today we're going to answer the age-old question, why aren't more financial advisors and RIAs using alternatives? And Jimmy, it really is a, uh, a trillion-dollar question, I think, because this industry, the alternatives industry, has just exploded in popularity in the last decade or more. And, and advisors, I, I hate to say it, are still lagging behind. I mean, l- luckily, you and I get to interact with so many RIAs and wealth managers who, quote unquote, get it. But there still are, are a ton of financial advisors who they're just not aware of them or, or they don't want to use them or they just aren't using them. And we're going to talk about why that is. And Jimmy, you've sent me some links that you want to talk about today because I, I think there's a lot to unpack here. But why don't we start with this link, Jimmy? It's the DIYer reporting uh, on this recent release from Robert A. Stanger and Company on the size of the alternatives industry uh, this year, You know the inflows this year. And I know we recently covered this on a Roundup episode six weeks ago. So maybe we could just touch on these numbers briefly, Jimmy. How big is this industry? Well, maybe we can zoom out a second before we touch on this uh, article, Andy, I wanted to kind of uh, reply to something you said in the intro, which was this is an age old question. I don't know if it's age old or not, but it's become a lot more relevant, certainly in the last six to 12 months. Right, Andy, with the way that the market has gone. I mean, just looking at how a lot of investment portfolios are put together on, and I'm talking about retail investors right now, institutional investors have for a long time had a lot of exposure to alternatives. So we're, we're talking about kind of the shift into uh, alternative investment products by the retail end of things. For a long time, you know, it was okay for retail investors to be focused primarily on stocks and bonds because those two asset classes were negatively correlated. But, you know, for the past, uh, I don't know, I don't know how long, Andy, maybe you can give me some insight here, but, but for, for at least the last six months or so, it seems like um, there's been positive correlation between those two asset classes and that they've, they've both been going down. Uh, certainly over the last six months, bonds are no longer acting as a ballast for stocks. Well, um, Jimmy, Jimmy, yeah. Well, let me give you my, my little phrase here. Okay. In, in times of crisis, all correlations go to one. And, and I don't know if this is where you were going with this, with alternatives, but I would also say a lot of the non-trade adults are correlated with those as well and have also gone down although in some cases in some cases the the you know that price change is just it's not clear yet because alts are illiquid and you know that that those assets may not be transacting um but anyway go on yeah well i I just another point i was going to make was and I think we'll touch upon this as the episode unfolds today as our conversation unfolds Andy but you know some reasons why RIAs or other financial advisors and, and the retail investor are 
maybe underexposed to alternatives or, or don't have as, as much skin in the alternative game is because alternatives do suffer some problems, right? You, you do face some headwinds when you get into them. One, they're complex oftentimes. Two, they can be expensive. Um, and three, they can be hard to access. Four, they can, they, they are uh, by definition more illiquid than most traditional assets. But, but Jimmy, I mean, who cares? The, the alts industry is just this tiny little industry without a lot of big numbers behind it, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so you wanted me to turn to my attention to this article you've got pulled up over here now. So it looks like, well, what do we got here? We, we covered this topic in, uh, when, when was it? A month or two ago, Andy, um, on the podcast. And it looks like alternative, non-traded alternative assets totaled 51 point sorry, $52.1 billion. And that's just through May of 2022. So that's just through the first five months of the year um, fundraising for the alternative asset class, according to Robert A. Stanger and company. And I'd like, I, I pointed this out last time. Also, Stanger doesn't track a couple of what we might consider alternative investments. Um, and probably the 800 pound gorilla in the room with respect to our businesses, Andy, is they don't track qualified opportunity funds, I don't believe. But you know, that the, the $52.1 billion, according to the article here, tracks uh, REITs, followed by non-traded BDCs, and then interval funds, and then finally Delaware statutory trusts, or, or DSTs as they're more commonly referred to, which are uh, certain types of fractionalized 1031 exchanges that invest in, in real estate um, properties. Hey, Amber, Jimmy, regardless if the assets contained in some of these alts products, regardless of the assets have gone up or down in price, we're looking at serious inflows into these products, right? And, and as this article mentions, uh, this figure through May 2022 is 108%, a 108% increase over that same time period of 2021. And I mean, we've, we've really had economic uncertainty since Q1 of this year. Uh, obviously that's kind of accelerated a little bit in, in Q2 of this year. Uh, but despite that economic uncertainty, we're still seeing heavy, heavy inflows into the alternatives industry. Yeah. It's incredible. Isn't it? I mean, more than double the same amount over that same, what is that? Uh, five month period year through uh, January one through May 31, I, I guess it is. Um, and I think, you know, the, the bottom line here is that investors are chasing ROI, they're chasing yield, and they've stopped finding it with stocks and, and bonds. And so they're, they're headed elsewhere, they're headed into alternatives. So I think, you know, structurally, there were a lot of tailwinds for alternatives probably coming into this year. And then the market downturn has probably only accelerated the uh, the growth of alts uh, in the first several months of the year. I, I don't know, do you have any any other thoughts on that, Andy? No, I think you're right. And, and let's talk about some of those structural tailwinds, Jimmy. And so the next link that you sent me uh, that, that Scott, was it Scott? No, Michael and I covered mm -hmm. in our recent roundup um, was this headline on the Wall Street Journal, Blackstone and other large private equity firms turn attention to vast retail markets. So they're going after the mass affluent, you know, individual investors with one to 5 million in investable assets. So the, 
the quote unquote, merely high net worth, even not even necessarily the very high net worth, uh, you know, the mass affluent. And, you know, the interesting thing here, Jimmy, is um, the article says that pension funds and sovereign wealth funds have an average of 26% for pension funds and 35% for sovereign wealth funds of their portfolios in these alternative asset classes at the end of the year. And so the idea here is as these institutionals, they're more or less meeting their allocation targets within their own you know, very large portfolios that they want to allocate to alternatives so that's you know that's that was one tailwind that really contributed to just massive growth in the past decade is so many institutionals waking up to the fact that they need to be allocating a healthy percentage you know 20 25 30 35 40% of their portfolio to alts and then slowly shifting some of those assets into alternatives according to this article in the journal you know that shift um, I wouldn't say it's it's going to end, but it may have uh, peaked in terms of its effect on the flow of capital. I mean, I, I still think there are, you know, there are going to be um, still a lot of institutionals who are going to continue to do that. But sort of the the biggest, the heaviest lift may be behind us. Um, but that being said, all of these sponsor companies, including you know the eight hundred pound gorillas, the Blackstones the Blue Owl Capitals, the Apollo Global Management, they, they still obviously are looking for growth. They're looking to you know, uh, gain new investor assets. So I think it's only natural that they're now turning to the retail investor. And when they're turning to the retail investor, that means they're also turning to the advisor, right? The, the wealth managers, the RIAs, the advisors, who are helping manage um, you know, the portfolios for all of these individual investors. So Jimmy, would you say that this is the pivotal moment you know, when, when it's finally starting to happen? Uh, well, it seems if not now, then when, right, Andy? And to your point, it seems like we've kind of hit a ceiling with institutional investors in terms of how much more how, how much larger that addressable market can be. Yeah, let's, let's not say a ceiling. Let's yeah. say maybe the, the acceleration or, or the growth is slowing down. You know? Yeah. Well, yeah, I'd say, yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. The, the growth of that market has slowed down where at, because, you know, a lot of institutions have, are already allocated to alternative investments um, in, in what they deem to be an appropriate amount. Whereas if you look at the smaller mass affluent retail investor, high net worth retail investor and their advisors, uh, there's still a lot of waking up left, left to be had there, I think. Um, and we'll get into some of the numbers a little bit later in the conversation today. Well, Andy. well let me interject, Jimmy. Yeah. I don't know if you can see what I've highlighted on my Yeah, screen. let me let me take a look here. Okay, yeah. And by the way, you know, our podcast is on YouTube now. So if, if you're watching on YouTube, obviously you can see what we're highlighting. Uh, if you're listening to the audio version of the podcast, we'll make sure to link all of these articles in the show notes. Uh, well, but I would say if you're listening, stop listening and load up YouTube immediately and so you can watch <laughs> That's true. unless you're listening to this on your commute jimmy um 
Fair. I'd say stick Fair it with the audio for safety reasons, but individuals, this is, this is the, what I, the, the text that I'm highlighting, individuals worth 1 million or more held 79.6 trillion in investable assets globally in 2020, according to a 2021 report by consulting firm Capgemini. But private equity firms estimate that less than 5% of that amount, less than 5% of that basically $80 trillion is currently invested with them. So, so that that's nowhere near, you know, the ceiling or even probably the halfway point of, of the shift that we could see into alternatives on the part of the retail investor, on the part of the mass affluent, you know, high net worth or very high net worth, even ultra high net worth are still probably under allocated significantly to alternatives. Yeah, I I think you're exactly right there. And I mean, there's a long way to go in terms of capturing some of those retail investor dollars. So I think what you're going to see, and we've already started to see this unfolding, but what you're going to continue to see unfolding over the next few years and probably the next decade or more will be a bigger push into the retail market by these alternative investment product sponsors for that very reason. It's a land grab. According to Matt Brown, yeah. The, yeah, the, CEO of Case, right? Yeah, it is a land grab. So, quote, you're seeing the mutual fund boom 2.0, um, you know, referring to the mutual fund boom of the 1990s. So, Jimmy, we're talking about retail investors, okay? And, and so many of them, obviously, are assisted by advisors, by RIAs, by uh, wealth managers. And, you know, you interviewed... Uh, let me bring up this next link. So this link is a, a, a podcast page for your interview with Louis Reynolds yep. um, on opportunitydb.com. And so this is a recap of the interview. And for our viewers, you can click on the link and, and check out the whole interview. But Louis had some interesting things to say about DST specifically. So he was talking about just one segment of the alternatives market, although you know, it's, it's a pretty significant segment. And I know DSTs have been increasingly popular in the past few years. They've been growing quite a bit, but he had some really surprising thoughts on how many advisors are actually helping place clients into DSTs. Yeah. A uh, good point there, Andy. So yeah, Louis Reynolds is the CEO of Synergistic Exchange Solutions. They're a platform for advisors to discover different alternative investment products, including qualified opportunity funds and Delaware statutory trusts. And, and he made a point during our interview that there are approximately 600,000 licensed advisors in the United States. Uh, but given that large number of advisors, he pointed out that only 1,000 of them did any DST deals last year. And only 50 of those ended up doing approximately 65% of the total volume. So, uh, and he and I were hold joking. On, hold about, on, Jimmy. Do you yeah. know that's that 600,000 number? Is that broker dealers? Does that include RAAs? Was that, was that just his number? Do you know? That was it? his number and he referred to them as licensed advisors. So we might have to go back to him and ask him what exactly he meant by that. But I, I think it did include 
um, broker dealers and RIAs and other types of financial advisors with some okay. sort of license. Okay. And, and sorry, repeat the numbers again. Did you say 600,000 licensed advisors, only 1000 of them did any DST transactions last year. So, so less than a fifth of a percent did. Any yeah. D- and so we joked about what are the other 599,000 <laughs> licensed advisors doing? Cause surely there are more than 1000, uh, advisors who have real estate investors who would potentially benefit from all of the uh, tax mitigation that doing a DSTD a deal would entail. Especially when you consider we're talking about the mass affluent, right? From that last previous article in the journal, talking about the mass affluent, the high net worth clients. And so many of those uh, folks have either built their wealth through real estate right? Or they own some investment real estate, right? So uh, a very significant proportion of those clients would be eligible to do 1031 exchanges into a DST, right? So it's, it's not like it's a bunch of folks. It's not like it's all a, a bunch of, uh, you know, Google millionaires who are- <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 600,000 licensed advisors. I mean, the, sh- certainly almost all of those probably have at least one or two clients that would um, be capable of doing some sort of DST deal at, at some point during the year. So, you know, we were, we were lamenting the fact that there really hasn't been more uptick in DST deals, probably because of lack of awareness for one, maybe complexity of doing it. Maybe there's some sort of knowledge gap or educational hurdle that needs to be clear. It, it might just be lack of time, lack of bandwidth on, on, the behalf of uh, a lot of different advisors, you know, maybe they don't have time to look into this stuff or, or diligence these types of DST funds that invest in real estate. There, there's a variety of reasons, but um, it, it shocked both of us that, that, that the number was so low. And uh, I, I, I do want to, yeah, I do want to say, Jimmy, um, you know, with our listenership and, and viewership at AltsDB, we have a lot of advisors and RIAs and family offices mm-hmm. in our audience. And I think they, you know, they are the advisors who get it. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I think we're probably preaching to the choir uh, a, a little bit here. So, you know, there, there are advisors who are using them. It's just they're very few in number. And I actually just finished a recording uh, with Justin White. So, and I don't know when this episode runs, it, it's either going to be the episode previous to this one, or it might be the subsequent episode that we published. Um, but, but he does a lot of 1031s with Centennial Advisors, and they help place a lot of clients into replacement properties and help them complete 1031 exchanges. And he did mention that he has seen an uptick among financial advisors uh, who are using their services. So I, I think it's a small number, but it is it is growing. And you know, speaking of advisors and family offices, I want to bring up our next link which was uh, another Alts TV podcast episode that we recorded with DJ Van Kuren, uh, of the um, Evergreen Property Partners, as well as the Family Office Real Estate Institute. And, and he talked about, you know, the idea of all of these tax advantage alts and a lot of family offices. And, and so now we're talking about ultra high net worth investors. They're not even necessarily using these tax advantage programs with their real estate uh, transactions, even though it seems like it should be a slam dunk, sometimes it just isn't happening. Yeah, and I, I don't remember 
the exact number that he pointed to, Andy. Maybe, maybe you recall, or maybe there wasn't an exact number. Um, but but I, I know that this kind of uh, compounded on what Louis was telling me when I did that interview with him a couple weeks earlier, which was it's kind of surprising how few investors, how few advisors, how few family offices are doing these hugely tax mitigating investment vehicles like DSTs and 1031s. You know, you look at a family office and you think, oh, this this family's worth $100 million or $250 million, whatever the case is. Surely they must be sophisticated. And probably they are sophisticated in one sense because they earned that wealth in some way. But if it wasn't through real estate, maybe they're not sophisticated real estate investors. Maybe they haven't cottoned on to some of these tax mitigating strategies that, Andy, are kind of like second nature to you and me because we've been podcasting and writing about them for so many years, right? Um, we have to remember that that family offices ha have a learning curve to clear in many cases as well. Um, do, do you remember what, what DJ said exactly about you know the the number of uh, family offices that were not doing 1031 exchanges when, when they should. Yeah. I don't remember the exact figure, but yeah. I, you're exactly right. That it was, it was even at the ultra high net worth level. Mm -hmm. A lot of times these transactions occurred and they were not being executed as a 1031 exchange. And so, you know, again, you know, you, you don't necessarily want a client to have the, the tail wagging the dog, right? You don't need to, structure a transaction as a 1031 exchange just to say you did. But the, the truth is most commercial real estate transactions, I would think that most of them, you'd at least want to give heavy consideration to completing a 1031 exchange. Uh, and, and even at that family office level, at the ultra high net worth investor level, a lot of times it's, it's just not happening. And our next article, now, now we have some hard statistics, Jimmy. Um, yep. This is from PGIM Investments. Uh, the article title is 50% of advisors use alternatives, citing need for greater portfolio diversification. So I guess this is a positive spin on it, Jimmy. Um, the article is claiming that approximately 50% of advisors uh, report using alts in client portfolios, although only 31% of the whole indicate that they have access to a wide range of alternative investment options. And 19% cite limited access. And then, then the other half of advisors surveyed said they do not use any alts in client portfolios. So I guess the negative side of that is, you know, 50% of advisors say they're not using alts. And then another 19% above that say they only have limited access. What are your thoughts here, Jimmy? Yeah, well, this is one of the knocks on alternatives that I mentioned uh, within the first minute or two of our conversation, Andy, right? I mentioned some of the downsides that alts are complexity, um, illiquidity, and well, I forget what a couple of the other ones were. Well, one of them was um, lack of access, or they're, they're hard to, to access oftentimes, both for the direct investor himself, like the actual individual investor, but also for the advisor community. A little bit later in our conversation today, Andy, I know I think it's the final article we're going to pull up. We're going to talk about some of the platforms that have been shedding some light on alternatives for the advisor community. But 
you know, turning to this article now and seeing only 31% of advisors have access to a wide range of alternative investments. What, what a problem that is and what an opportunity it is really for, for the potential of alternative investments. Um, yeah, it's interesting that, uh, I guess to put a spin on the other way, it's fascinating to me that only half of advisors uh, have any type of exposure to uh, alternatives in their investors' portfolios. What are, we, what are we highlighting here now, Andy? 29% of advisors do not believe alternative investments are appropriate for their clients or consider them too risky. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know if I want that 29% to be my advisor who just writes off an entire major uh, asset class as just, quote, too risky. Yeah. they're uh, what, Essentially, they're betting against alternative investments when they when they say that um yeah, and on a market cap weighted basis that's almost like saying publicly traded stocks are just too risky let's not invest in them you know right. like for a certain for a certain level of client now look if if you have if you're a younger advisor with a younger client base and you have you know a lot of clients with uh you know low six figure portfolios or something and, and and you're saying look you know a, a target date retirement fund that's that's appropriate for a lot of my clients that makes sense to me but once you're dealing with very high net worth ultra high net worth clients um i i really think that's a very outdated point of view mm -hmm. am i am i going wrong here jimmy am i am i, am I off base uh well i don't think so but yeah. I'm not one of those, I'm not part of the 29%. So maybe we could find one of those 29% at some point and get him on the podcast and <laughs> ask him why he feels that way. That'd be, that'd be interesting to kind of delve into that. Uh, so this part you're highlighting right now is fascinating to me. Talk about, talk about mutual funds and ETFs for a minute here, Andy. Yeah. So furthermore, you know, when you talk about uh, this, this says only 50% of advisors are really using alts that, these advisors primarily, and these are the ones who participated in the survey, but they primarily prefer to access alternatives via mutual funds and ETFs, followed by closed-ed funds and master feeder vehicles slash limited partnerships. So there's even a lot of uh, product wrappers, Jimmy, that I would say are you know alternatives mainstays that aren't even included by any of these buckets. Um, you know, for instance, your favorite qualified opportunity funds, right? Um, they're probably like a, a rounding error of the survey. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Survey, you know, participants, um, you know, so, so even, you know, depending on the mutual fund or ETF that we're talking about, you know, they might be a liquid alter. They might be something that I would barely even classify as an alternative, you know, at least, at least in the frame that, you know, we use for alternatives at AltsDB, which tend to be, you know, the more we, we cover the more illiquid, non-traded alts. Yeah. And then the, the chart below here on your screen, Andy, 63% uh, of advisors who do use alternative investments for their clients prefer to use mutual funds and ETFs. Now, the, these categories aren't mutually exclusive because they add up to far more than 100%, but... There seems to be like some sort of disconnect here in the survey questions. This was a survey of, I think at the top, it said 400 different financial advisors. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, 
half of the advisors say they don't use alternatives. A, a large percentage, I think it was what, 18, 19% said they have limited or no access to alternatives. But then 63% are saying they use mutual funds and ETFs to access alternative asset classes. I mean, every, every advisor has access to, I would guess, a pretty wide range of the overall mutual fund and ETF universe. So I think even some advisors maybe don't consider mutual funds and ETFs to be alternative investments, but those who are investing in alternatives are primarily using mutual funds and ETFs. Does, does that make sense to you, Andy? You're kind yeah, of following sure. I mean, what I'm saying here? Yeah. I mean, you know, I guess we can take commodity ETFs and, and gold ETFs and, you know, mutual funds that, you know, hold commodities and things like that. And, you know, we can call them alternatives and, you know, well, I might say like trend following ETFs also that, that yeah. take into account, um, so I, derivatives contracts. Yeah. That brings up an issue, Jimmy, that I think we face a lot at AltDB is that different people mean different things when they say alternative investment. So, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes all that means is it's an alternative strategy, but the, the wrapper or the fund or the manager is is buying and selling traditional investments. They're just using a non-traditional or alternative strategy when they're investing or trading those investments. And then, you know, a lot of people, you know, will sometimes use it to mean like liquid alts, like commodity ETFs, gold ETFs, things of that nature. Um, you know, on our side of the industry, we're talking about illiquid alts, non-traded alts, you know, 506B and 506C funds typically invested in real estate, but also sometimes operating businesses. And of course, we also have energy programs and, you know, things of that nature. So, you know, any kind of survey like this, I, I, I think you, you, you identified something there, Jimmy, which is just a lot of advisors and even industry professionals, they mean something different when they say alternatives and or alternative investments. And, and, and that just kind of adds, I think, to the confusion and opacity and, you know, some of those headwinds that the industry faces. But nevertheless, uh, the alternatives industry is growing by leaps and bounds. And I, I think it's, it's probably inevitable that some advisors will be left behind, probably not the advisors who listen to our show, but, but definitely some advisors will be left behind. And that brings up my next link. Yeah, if you, if you can go just go back to that article just for one more yep. moment here, um, just to kind of round out my thoughts on it. I think one of, probably, I don't know, maybe one of the biggest reasons is that lack of liquidity, right? That's why advisors don't put their clients into alternative investments. So one way around the lack of liquidity is to put them in publicly traded alternative products like mutual funds and ETFs. So you can always get out or get money, get, get some liquidity from those rather easily. So um, I guess we're kind of going around in circles here, but I just want to point that out. Maybe that's why so many of them prefer mutual funds and ETFs. But, but nevertheless, uh, some of them are going to be left behind. At least that's the, uh, that's the implication of this story from RIA Intel. Mm -hmm. The title of this story is White Paper Cautions Advisors on Underexposure to Alternative Investments. And let me just read the lead quote here. And this was published on October 27th of 2021, by the way. So it's a pretty recent article. Quote, at some point, if they're ignoring these markets, then even if you follow a passive investing argument, 
then they're no longer getting the market return by avoiding them, says Daniil Shapiro, associate director at Cerulean, author of a new report on alternative investments. And I think that's right, Jimmy, because on a market, you know, so many of these passive investment strategies are based on market cap weighting, right? And as the alternatives industry gets bigger and bigger, and as more funds are flowing into alternatives funds, uh, even on that pure passive sort of market cap weighted approach, you need to be in alternatives if you want to claim to have that diversified portfolio where you're just quote buying the market. Isn't that right? That's right. And as Daniel Shapiro points out, he stole one of my quotes, I think. He says, because if they're not allocated to alts, they're making a bet against these private markets. And okay, full disclosure, I probably stole that quote from him. I think I read it before we went on the air. And he said, that's why I had it in my head. But yeah, it's essentially making a bet against private markets. Um, what, what else did we want to cover in this article here, Andy? What, what are some other salient points you wanted to highlight? Well, I mean, the, the article points out there are a lot of RIAs who who do get it, right? And, and so they're using some of these platforms that I know we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, but but this, this article really from RIA Intel, I think it it sort of drives home and, and reiterates what we discussed from our previous source, that there are many advisors that don't allocate anything to alternative investments. And those who do, um, they're not making substantial changes. Uh, so, you know, according to this article, advisors only plan to increase their allocation in alternative assets by 1.3% from 10.5% to 11.8% over the next two years. So going back to the, the very first or no, the second article we covered rather, talking about how much institutionals and sovereign wealth funds allocate, which is 26 and 35% uh, respectively, individual investors are still way lower in terms of their allocation to alts at, at 11.8%. And you know, another interesting thing- Yeah, here, Andy, hang on a second. If you click through to the don't allocate anything, just trust me, click that click that link right there. I've yeah. got that one pulled up on my screen right now. This, this article is a couple years older. It's from September of 2019, but you can kind of scroll down a few paragraphs. Most right there, most private wealth advisors, 55% don't allocate any client money to alts and those who do might not be allocating enough. So this actually says amongst those surveyed advisors that use alts, the average allocation is below 5%. So it has grown over the past few years, but it's still, it's still pretty far behind. Uh, this article, again, being from 2019, the wealthiest private investors often allocate 40% of their it, assets, right? You know, Jimmy, Dalton. I want to point something out too, that with a lot of alternatives... Um, you know, they're really partially driven by tax advantages. Mm -hmm. Those tax advantages are most applicable to individual investors, right? Not to institutional investors. So if anything, I would think ultra high net worth individuals and family offices should have the very highest allocation to alternatives. Um, possibly higher than institutionals. Of course, you know you have investment horizon. You have you know time horizon. I guess is another factor in terms of being liquid or illiquid. But like we're talking about DSTs, we're talking about QOFs. I mean that should be the bailiwick of very high net worth, ultra high net worth investors, as well as the RIAs 
and family offices who serve them, I would think. Well, I think I think access to alts for a very long time was closed off to smaller investors. I mean, you know, alternative asset um, investment products really didn't cater to RIAs. They didn't cater to the retail group. They really only wanted institutional money for a long time. It's only recently that we're seeing the shift underway. And I'm glad you brought up QOF, Sandy. I can get on my OZ soapbox for a minute. I mean, it, it, again, I as, I as I've said on this podcast and my Opportunity Zones podcast for a long time, I think it's the greatest tax incentive ever created, but it applies really not to institutional investors who don't pay taxes anyway, but it implies or oftentimes don't because they're, they're, they're shielded, but it applies largely to uh, individual investors who can save a, a, a whole lot of money on, on their taxes by, by investing in Opportunity Zones. Um, yeah, what do you? What else you got here, Andy? With well, this one, I, I think where where we want to go next, and I know we're we're running short on time, but but I want to cover this. So, you know, we've spent so much time in this episode talking about RIAs and advisors who you know quote unquote don't get it. But but again, I know a lot of our listeners and viewers uh, are ahead of the curve, right, and, and are already using alternatives in client portfolios. And several of these links that we've brought up and some of this data, you know, suggests that a lot of advisors aren't using alternatives because of limited access. They can't find them or they have no practical way to invest in them. And so I, I want to read this from RIA Intel, um, quote, the increasing use of alternatives is also driving growth at platforms like iCapital Network, which raised $440 million in funding this past fall and CAIS, which has built an intuitive learning system to help advisors learn more about alts. And we say case, right, Jimmy? It's, yeah, it's pronounced case, but it is capital C-A-I-S. That's right. Right. And, and that uh, relates to this last final article that I'm going to bring up here um, from CityWire. As alts get hot, alts marketplaces try catering to RIAs. And I believe this article mentions case as well as uh, iCapital yep. and talks Absolutely, about, yep. talks about some of these platforms. So, so Jimmy, could you, could you talk a little bit about these platforms and, and, you know, what you're seeing with RIAs accessing them and, and their increased popularity? Yeah. Uh, scroll down, if you don't mind, Andy, to that header, the marketplace market right there. Yeah. So I think that, that key, Paragraph, that second paragraph there, I'll just read that. On an institutional level, a leader has emerged in iCapital Network. Go ahead and highlight it, Andy, yeah. which aims to bridge that divide. Founded in 2013, it's about 10 years old now. New York firm's platform service today services some $105 billion in assets, more than double what it had at the end of 2019 across nearly 900 funds. So iCapital is essentially a platform for alternative investment products to list on to get in front of RIAs and ultra high net worth and high net worth investors. And just the fact that it's gone from about $50 billion in assets to over $100 billion in assets just in the last two and a half years, that tells you how much investors are chasing ROI, how much they're chasing yield, how much they're shifting away from traditional assets and into, um, into alternatives and, and how much this particular product has grown, how much funding 
did it say that they raised in that previous article, Andy? It looks like they raised um, what was it, four hundred and forty million dollars? Yeah. I think, yeah, four hundred and forty million. And I mean, they I, raised four hundred and forty million dollars in funding. That's on a four billion dollar valuation. I, I capital is wow. worth four billion dollars, which is pretty impressive for a platform that's that's just ten years old now. Um, what else do you have here, Andy? You want to read this next one here? Yeah, you know, so iCapital is end-to-end platform, you know, quote-unquote end-to-end platform. And so it's that full stack. And, you know, the quote here is we're trying to serve advisors wherever and however they choose to practice, whether that's large banks, IBDs, or RIAs. And I mean, I, I think that might be one of the major points here, Jimmy, is, uh, you know, registered reps may be, you know, used to a particular platform or required to use a particular platform and they won't have necessarily access to a lot of these products, but iCapital has struck a lot of partnerships. So let me highlight this. Partnerships provide another robust pipeline of new customers for iCapital because uh, the company struck deals with Adapar and InvestNet to provide its products on their marketplaces. So iCapital white labels its technology to around 128 firms that offer iCapital products to their own clients. So part of this, that strategy, this is a quote, part of our strategy is to be the alternative plugin to help power other marketplaces. So I, I think, Jimmy, that's how they're able to reach a lot of IBDs. Uh, obviously, RIAs can can kind of go anywhere, right, on, on any platform, but, but they're going to be time limited, right? So um, I think reaching all of these markets is pretty hard. And you could see where a company like iCapital with, uh, you know, frankly, just a, a big war chest and, uh, you know, a lot of resources, um, they're able to strike some of these partnerships and, and give uh, just a huge number of financial advisors access to these products. And, and I would say, even if iCapital is a competitor in many ways, uh, to a lot of companies in the space, including Case, which this article mentions here, um, just giving any access to alternatives and sort of nudging advisors in that direction is probably a good thing for the industry long term, you know, regardless of, of what platform that's occurring on, because I think advisors just need to get used to the fact that it's healthy to allocate a percentage of a client portfolio to alts. For sure, Andy. I think uh, these two platforms in particular are helping to grow the pie and they're helping exactly. advisors go somewhere to learn more about the product and to do due diligence on the different products. So you've got, by the way, it's amazing how much money these these two platforms are worth given how young they both are. Uh, iCapital being worth, I think it was $4 billion in valuation based on another article, not this one. And then this article mentions that Case is, is worth $1 billion after raising $225 million from, from Franklin Templeton. Andy, let me ask you a question now, maybe to kind of help round out our conversation here. You know, for RIAs that are cottoning on to alternative investments and the tax mitigation strategies that alts offer, the diversification that alts offer, Oftentimes the the non-correlated nature, sometimes not, but sometimes the non-correlated nature with more traditional assets that alts offer. What are some of the advantages for some RIAs who have an alternative investment strategy in place? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, especially in terms of attracting more clients, just to lead the witness a little bit. Sure. Well, I think it's a differentiator, right? Um, as you've mentioned that, you know, wealth planning wealth management is a pretty crowded, uh, mature market. And so if you're a financial advisor, especially if you're targeting clients nationwide, there's a lot of competition out there, right? So focus on alts or an expertise in alts, definitely a point of differentiation. I mean, you know, we, we already talked about how few advisors are used to helping clients, um, perform DST or 1031 transactions into Delaware statutory trusts. Uh, I think the same is true for QOFs and for all types of alts. But one other point I'd bring up, Jimmy, is that investors who are interested in tax advantage alts are almost definitionally going to skew towards being uh, at least high net worth, if not very high net worth or ultra high net worth. So if you think in terms of, you know, not just, uh, number of clients, but the, the, the wealth, uh, you know, owned by clients, potential clients who are interested in alts, you know, I think it's going to skew towards, uh, frankly, a higher net worth client base who are interested in these tax advantage programs. So I think there's a huge opportunity for RIAs. And I, I know I've heard from a lot of sponsors and industry folks who say, you know, sponsors are aware that this is a huge opportunity for them to reach RIAs and it's, you know, it's kind of a fractured market. So it's hard to reach. It's expensive to reach independent RIAs. Um, But certainly I think that that's top of mind for a lot of sponsors to reach them. So I think really that's, that's kind of, we're we're circling around it. Um, That's the opportunity is for sponsors to really accurately tell the story of, you know, their products and, you know, now that we have 506 C's, there's just so many options for investors. And so we need to spread the word. We need to get the word out. And RIAs on their end, I think they are increasingly understanding that these products can be of benefit to their clients. And I think uh, some retail investors even are, are asking for it. So certainly we're going to see a lot of growth in the next several years ahead. And I think as an RIA, as a financial advisor, you know, the, the question for each advisor is, are you going to stay ahead of the curve uh, or are you going to potentially be left behind by ignoring this market? Jimmy, do you have anything to add? You stole all my thunder, Andy. I got nothing else to <laughs> add. You've left me speechless for once. So, uh, yeah, but I, I, I agree with everything you said. Very well put. I think there's a huge opportunity both for alternative investment product sponsors to get in front of more investors, but also for RIAs to grow their Rolodex or client base by catering to those who are interested in tax advantaged alternative products. Exactly right, Andy. I guess I wasn't speechless. I'll turn it back over to you now though to to close us out, Andy, go for it. Absolutely. So I just want to remind our listeners, obviously our viewers have been following along on the screen share, but for our listeners, you'll be able to find links to all of the resources and news stories that we mentioned in today's episode on altsdb.com slash podcast. You can get the show notes and also a reminder to everyone watching this video or listening to this show. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform so that you'll be sure to receive our new episodes as we release them. Jimmy, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks, Andy. Always a pleasure. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. 
If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.